Welcome to the Happiness Contribution Show with me, your happy host, Rosaria Cirillo. On the show, we talk about the various roles happiness plays in our individual lives and in business, and about the benefits that being happy brings. And we share knowledge and practices about what contributes to our happiness. Join me and my guests on this happiness journey together and get involved by visiting our website at happinesscontribution.com. We are here this afternoon for the second episode of The Humankind, where we have a very, very special guest that we are going to interview. It is Mary, Mary Tucker. I'm super excited about it. You'll understand why in a moment. So first, let me say who is Mary. Mary is the CEO of UPIC Health and the co-founder of MyCare Village. She has over 25 years of successfully launching, leading, and transforming award-winning and multi-channel communication center across Europe, US, very much worldwide. Uh, and in 2014, she launched UPIC Health uh, around the core value of empathy. And that is also how and why Stan Phelps and I included UPIC Health as one of the leading example in our book, Yellow Factor. And you can see all, notice all the points where we mentioned uh, UPIC Health because we have it under empathy but we also have it a lot under the how. And I have known Mary since 2008 when she was the global director of consumer care for Philips. So she's actually been my manager. And it is I've my been manager. your manager. And it was one of the greatest, uh, one of the best experiences of my career. <laughs> you definitely challenged me. That is for sure. We, I think we've made great partners. Yeah, so I have a feeling this interview might get quite personal at some point, but uh, let's get right. Yeah, let's get right into it, Mary. Okay. What we like to ask our guests for the first question is really to introduce yourself. Who are you as human being? Yeah, who am I as a human being? Uh, so I have a name, Mary Tucker. I have a place where I was born, uh, Connecticut. I have a place where I grew up. North Carolina, and um, I've had about 50,000 careers. One of my favorite questions to ask employees when we're, when we're getting to know each other is, what was your first job? So I like to tell mine was among, and first and weirdest jobs, my weirdest job was I gave out Twinkie samples at a Piggly Wiggly for two weeks, honest to God. And I'm like, and I remember chopping these things up going, who in God's name hasn't tasted a Twinkie? <laughs> My grandmother, who lived to 109, was probably our, our world's first naturopath. Uh, she was the one who taught all of us in the family when grocery stores started proliferating. She said, do not shop in the center aisles. Only shop the perimeter, which... You know, Michael Pollan now has that in his book, you know, Omnivore's Dilemma and stuff. I read it and I was like, yeah, I've been there, done that. My, my grandmother was way ahead of you. Um, but she, she taught all of us and then it kind of passed through to my mother the um, relationship between what you put in your body and what comes out in content, to, to, to say it uh, as succinctly as I can. And so... I've gone through the years putting garbage in my body, whether it's what I read, whether it's what I chose to value, or whether it's what I chose to eat. And uh, for a myriad reasons, which kind of goes back to this happiness thing. 
uh, I was not happy. And, uh, but we'll talk about it, you know, in terms of like reconciling what we were talking about earlier before we started recording, which is happiness or the pursuit of happiness, which is, which is more important to concentrate on. And for me, when I reconciled the pursuit of happiness is what I need to concentrate on. That's when the garbage in activity stopped. And the quality of content coming out of me elevated. And I started UPIC and I met Sandrina and, th- and you you're, ended up in your book. And I met some fabulous people. It just sort of life switched into a different point of view and direction when I was more conscious about what I was putting in, accepting that uh, happiness is, it's more important, the pursuit, and then being very intentional about what is it as a human being that will make me the happiest and pursue that. And that's what, what is your definition of happiness then, Mary? What is happiness for you? I'd say for me personally, it's being comfortable in my skin because I acknowledge, and we all do, you know, uh, life, you know, I believe successfully navigating our complex world, um, and it's just getting more and more complex every day. I'm not saying anything profound here. We all know it. We're all living the same in the same time space continuum. Um, I have accepted that there will day, there will be days, there will be moments there where I'm like super not happy, <laughs> you know, like good thing. There's not like a sharp implement around and that's okay. That's part of the human experience. I think being happy is accepting that as human beings, we're all connected to each other. We all are existing in a similar experience. Circumstances might be different, but the, but we're all in this life experience. We entered the world the same way. We exit roughly the same way. And the journey in between those two points is like this. And there's joy to be found in the lessons learned. It took forever to, to understand this. And I think that had to do with being comfortable in the skin, dealing with past traumas and all that garbage. It sounds like there is a pattern for all of us where we can, when we get over our 40, then we really understand that indeed it's okay. But- I have learned so much from my young workforce. You want to talk about... So I started the company. I'm a different person than when I started UPICA. I started UPICA as the, you know, I'm a call center person. I'm going to create all this value and all this, you know, and we're going to be empathic. And I had all this like idealistic... And, and the millennial and Gen Z workforce were like, yeah, except we have a different idea about this. And there was a period in our earliest years of like, wait, what? Who? What? I don't know. And I realized I don't know how to talk to anybody. And they taught me how to talk to them. And, and I think we had one point that the millennials are different. And it's probably our generation. I need, need to get over the. Oh, but, you know, I was thinking today, you know, I, I literally was thinking this morning. Uh, in the wee hours, Gen Z blames uh, baby, uh, baby boomers. Gen X blames everybody. 
and millennials are flowery on the outside and, and passive aggressive underneath. And, and what we don't realize is Gen X are getting ready to be the boomers, but you know, it's like, we've, we've taken some sort of um, economic category and turned it into a culture defined by age. That, that for me is a recipe for a disaster as we continue to get into the melting pot of what the gig economy and everybody's trying to make money in different ways. It's, it's, it's interesting. I, I think that's an opportunity for us to kind of break down those walls and say, look, it's, it's, I'm just an older you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? And do you, would you say that also the definition of happiness is different for the new generation? Well, I'm not sure happiness is, I, I think we have to look at happiness different, differently for anybody who was born after 9-11. Mm. Um, I also remember I was working for a company out of New York and I went to Romania. We were uh, doing a due diligence to buy a company in Romania, call center company. And we ended up buying them. But I was there for about a month. Um, and it was only 18 years after the public execution of their president. And the workforce was a bewildered workforce. This was a workforce who, were, who was existing in trauma because they watched uh, you know, pretty intense violence. And that was only true. So anybody after 9-11, I, I think we're, what we're dealing with, it's kind of what we were talking about with Patty Creighton the other day, uh, Rosaria. If 70% of the workforce is dealing with some sort of addiction or trauma or something, how in the world can we expect happiness when so much of our, I mean, our economic foundations, I have some thoughts about this, but, you know, capitalism is in question right now. We're sort of, we're sort of at end stage blind capitalism that we're saying we know that it has to change. Um, we've got sort of, in my humble opinion, I'll, I've got a lot of heat for this and um, I'm ready to take it because I, I, I can change my mind on it. But I think this notion of race to be first is causing a global failure economy that worries me a little bit. And I'm wondering if competition, you know, kind of the global economy that we're in, if competition can be rethought as personal best somehow. I mean, this is idealism stuff. But, I, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly how a young person with the tsunami of existential challenges that we're facing as a globe, I don't know how they carve out time for happiness, which is why I think many of them are retreating. We saw a mass exodus in the workforce this summer, and we're seeing people hop in their cars, certainly in this country. I don't know what's happening around the world, but you know, we're focused on this country because we're in such a, a state, right? But I've got people moving into their cars. They're saying, I, you know, this economy, I, I have to work 40 years? No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But at the same time, they're blaming, uh, blaming, uh, Baby boomers for the fall of Social Security, if they stop working, that, that whole system's going to collapse. So I just think happiness is, a, is, is maybe something that's we got to accept it, at least in this country, may not be attainable. 
until something breaks in our in our infrastructure and how we operate. And I think there are two key things that you mentioned that are very important to really uh, getting happy, which is like, one, it's about pursuing happiness. So it's about putting in place the steps and the practices that which allow you to be happy. And the other one uh, is also to know what happiness is and not to leave it too fluffy. So to also make it as concrete as possible, what we did with Stan is we actually look also at in which ways companies were contributing to happiness and yeah. in which way... Um, that also impacted people's happiness. Because ultimately, also customers or employees, they're human beings. So together, yeah. what we saw in the cases that we analyzed with uh, the psychology and Maslow hierarchy of needs and the studies of the Happiness Studies Academy, we came up with this sunflower of happiness. If you look at those nine factors, which of those factors would you say that contributes to you, Mary, the most at your personal happiness? So, so what makes you happy? How do you... Yeah, what's important, most important for you? Integrity. Why? Yeah, I, I mean, if, if I'm operating with, this is, I don't have any better way to say it, so forgive me, with pure intention, meaning, my company makes money this way. So, hey, everybody, let's all get on the same page so you understand how you contribute to that and you understand how I'm going to contribute to your capabilities and growth. We create an environment for where, where the pursuit of happiness is possible, not guaranteed, but possible. Um, if somebody enters a relationship, a business relationship, working relationship, or whatever, where they aren't authentic about what their needs are going in, right? Then you, or the employer isn't necessarily authentic about the job. They're just trying to attract someone because they got a, they got something they got to fill. Um, if if you're willing to skirt. Just the, the, the initial clarity of understanding of who each of you are when you, upon first meeting, you're, you're set up day one. Employee comes in, day one, set up for failure. So we spend a lot of time in our organization focusing on authentic communication, not being angry, understanding your emotions, but also recognizing boundaries are okay. Boundaries are real. We all have them and it's okay to voice them in a way that isn't threatening. It's just to say, I got this boundary and you crossed it. Or employees gets a chance to say, hey, you said you were going to do this and you didn't. I mean, I got, I got read out last week because I'd forgotten to do something for an employee. Now, most, and it took her a minute because I'm the CEO. So in her head, she sees like, this is the CEO. In my head, I'm like, I'm, I'm here to make you successful. What have I done? What have I done? Tell me what I've done that has prevented that. And when we were finally able to break through the fear of perceived roles, we have such an improved understanding of each other and we've moved forward. Were we happy? Were either one of us happy in, the, in our conversation that we had? Not even remotely. I was like, 
I'm talking to a millennial and I'm scared I'm going to say something wrong. And she's going, I better not say anything because she's a baby boomer and she's in charge. And we were trying to break through those barriers. Both of us were miserable trying to do it. Both of us were overjoyed once we broke through it. You make me smile because you, you, I get reminded also of some misunderstanding that we got. <laughs> and one well, I mean, do you remember that expression? Like when you once told me that I was uh, that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I live to regret it. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but one thing that Phillips taught me, which I thought was interesting, uh, Phillips had, and I, and I think it's like the Dutch culture. It was very, I felt that the Dutch liked uh, confrontation to get to the best result. Yeah, the Dutch, yes, not the Italians. <laughs> right. So, you, no, not Italians. Everybody, but everybody out in Americans are like, I, I don't want any confrontation. Okay. I just want to get to yes in the gentlest and easiest way. And I'll do anything I need to do to get there, which goes back to the integrity problem. Um, I, I think there's a lot of value in being comfortable with conflict. I, I think um, inability to resolve conflict between people is a cause of, of workplace disharmony. I, I'm reluctant to say happiness or unhappiness, but disharmony. Harmony for sure. Right? Because you get egos and, 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 and also, I mean, let's be, let's be real. Certain job types are drying up, right? They're being replaced by automation. And when we've got that competitiveness that's ingrained in our culture, uh, something else that I've thought about, why as human beings do we accept uh, an in participation in an industry that we would, or an industry at all that we would refer to as dog eat dog? Why do we, why do we submit ourselves to something that we say, all of us have said it, well, it's dog eat dog, what we're basically you have to explain it to me again. What is dog eat dog? Dog eat dog. Okay, that's an American expression, I guess. Dog eat dog means you get in there and you fight for what you need. Take no prisoners. Take no, you know, if you have to step on someone, if you have to bite someone in the leg and drag them back so you can succeed, do it because that's our economy and that's how it works. So uh, uh, you've heard rat race. Right. You've have you heard that expression, the rat race? We talk we talk about, you know, the nine to five corporate world is the rat race. So think about human beings for however <laughs> historically have submitted ourselves to something we call dog eat dog and rat race. We're, we, we're still stuck in this rat race, dog eat dog. That's where we've placed ourselves. How can a person be happy if inside, somewhere in the subconscious, in the psyche, we have accepted that we are dog-eat-dog -dog and rats? Hmm. How so is we, that the place where you think the change should start, that people should... Well, I wanna, I'm hoping we get to talk about B Corps. <laughs> we can get because, there. Well, because, because I am a capitalist. Look, I, I believe in the free market economy. I do. Obviously, I'm in, I'm in it. But I also believe in the role of nonprofits, although I think they all need, you know, nonprofits could stand a little retooling in terms of, you know, how they are designated and, you know, how much of the money goes to services. versus. I think a B Corp, if 
somehow it can be, there can be tax incentive to become a B Corp. Then we have a hope because B Corps are, I mean, they're, they, they are a corporate structure designed for checks and balances to make sure you are a good steward for the economy, for your employees. You know, you reinvest back into your communities and you are audited for that. But no, there's no incentive right now. It's like it's it's like a you know uh, good housekeeping seal of approval. I guess what what I see here in Europe. So we, with Stan, we also talk about B corps. In fact, in the chapter about integrity, and I, I, it's also like the word that I uh, wish we would have more of. But if in fact there is one thing that you taught me is that we bought with our money. So that that change is also in the hands of the consumers. So that one probably the tax. Um, advantage is one part, but the other one is also that the consumers start buying more from the B Corps. That's right. We start to go more for the B Corps. And the other one is the leaders, people like you. So what do you think would drive leaders like you to choose to become B Corps? In order for a B Corp to proliferate, consumers have to be aware of them, like you were just saying, and make a decision to buy. It took fair trade, God, 50 years to get fair trade chocolate into the brains of consumers to where we, it now means something to us, right? Um, I think people need to see and care about B Corps. They need to understand what they do and care about them. I, I, I think that for me, it's in legislation and giving it a tax incentive. For me, somewhere in between, if a if a B Corp is in, is sort of the best of for profit and in, in terms of nimbleness and speed to market, and the best of nonprofit in terms of social intention, then if they have a tax incentive to become one, I think that's that's the quickest route to it. I it's it's otherwise it's fifty years like fair trade. You know, to to and and that was largely driven by, you know, Catholic Relief Services and and uh, Axion uh, Microfinance. And the certification process is such that uh, I just said, okay, well, we'll just operate like a B Corp. And technically, I could just go put a B Corp stamp. I don't even need to really be audited. Well, I was uh, going to ask you. So let's now talk a bit more about UPIC and tell us why you started. And in fact. If you're pursuing the certification as B Corp or you are operating. Yeah, I've just been too busy. You know that my work is in family planning. So if anybody knows what's going on in this country in family planning, you know how busy my company is. It's an absolute, uh, it's, it's, it's really chaotic. Um, but, but, you know, I just, so, so certification isn't, uh, I haven't had time. I mean, it's a, it's a hundred point audit point, but we'll eventually get there. Um, you know, I've got some infrastructure changes that I've finally been able to put in place that I that I think we'll be able to get there. But we operate like one. Like I, I would feel, you know, once an auditor would come in and take a look at everything, they would see all of our community involvement, they'd see all of our employee engagement, all that stuff. Like we've added every year I add a new benefit. I added um, paid maternity leave. Uh, this year, so what does it know UPIC? Tell us a bit more about why you started it and what is the core of UPIC. Sure. So I was hired by uh, Planned Parenthood uh, National Office. They had put together a 
uh, call center for all of their affiliates. And uh, uh, it wasn't working well. Um, and uh, I came in and uh, at the time, the Affordable Care Act was just emerging. Uh, that sweeping uh, Obamacare uh, bill that was affecting family planning organizations, et cetera. So uh, for me, it wasn't just about like, a, you know, the call center, there was easy fixes in the call center. You know what I mean? There was like training. They didn't, you know, and it just needed to provide it, get a new provider. But that wasn't really the problem. The problem was that we hadn't strategically looked at what did we want the call center to do? And what sort of online tools could we use to simplify the process for the patients? So rather than focus on the call center initially, I, I moved some stuff online. Okay. But then we had the more complex calls left over and we had the affordable care act that was happening. And I could, and I just spent a lot of time getting underneath that legislation with the, with the legal uh, group. Cause you, you know, operations, you gotta be compliant. And uh, it just became evident that admin costs were going to go up in healthcare uh, and that I had uh, an expertise that I could apply to help stem that. And so, uh, but I started with a Planned Parenthood affiliate in Wisconsin and, and we just did family planning well because it's very complicated. Um, it's extremely complicated, highly lever uh, legislated, you know? And, uh, and then we just grew. From there, and uh, and we, we seem to be the, our nation's family planning facilitator. I don't know. I don't know of anybody else that does the kind of volume we do in, in an outsourced basis. And you got lots of awards, and you decide to make empathy your core. Can we you tell us why? Well, empathy is everything. So, I mean, look, I don't ever believe. I, first of all, I don't think you can teach it. I think you demonstrate it in how you operate, so that it cascades. You know, we always talk about things rolling, you know, culture rolls down. Of course, I tell everybody I'm on the bottom. We have an inverted uh, org chart. I'm on the bottom. My job is to make sure that they can do their jobs and that at the end of the day, they feel they've been productive and accomplished something meaningful. I, your question was, how do I make people happy every day? Well, I, I, first of all, I accept the fact that I can only do my part. They, they have a role in it as well. Um, but uh, I have introduced in the last year and a half um, meditation uh, into my world and uh, self-care. I've finally embraced this notion that you can't help others unless you help yourself. So I start every single day. I don't, I, I literally, I get up at the crack of dawn, if not before, and I do at least a half an hour of meditation. Uh, I'll do a little stretches because my old bones creaking around. Uh, so, and my physical therapist says, do those, uh, do some stretches. And then believe it or not, I've introduced um, frequency music <laughs> into the first hour of my day. So I'll choose a frequency that I think uh, might tap into something that I'm feeling in the morning that I'm just trying to lift myself out of. When I'm in a bad oh, mood, it's a mood, not on hertz. Or you are introducing it's hertz. Yeah. So so I might do you know five twenty eight, 
And again, I'll just yeah. okay. pop it through my house as I'm doing my stretches and my meditation. The time I'm starting my day with the team, my head is in a really positive, productive space because problems start. You know, our call centers are about you know problem navigation, right? And it's very easy to navigate and help others stay light in the heaviness of the problems that we deal with. Because sometimes we can have a day of technology problems as well as right now we've got women in Texas who are flooding one of our clients. And it's, and so it's a lot of anxiety that we're dealing with. And so it's really important that, that everybody start their day with just some kind of light and lift. Uh, because we're going to deal with heavy stuff. Um, whoever asked the question, what kind of meditation? I am not familiar with kinds. I'll tell you how it got started. In uh, the the new year before COVID, so that would have been uh, 20, December 31st, 2019. I live in Virginia Beach, and I decided to ring in the new year with a midnight meditation at the Casey Institute, uh-huh. Institute for Enlightenment, as well as a hospital that was based on naturopathic medicine. He created a massage technique called uh, the Casey Riley Institute. Dr. Riley was a chiropractor. I, I swear by this. So anyway, they had a midnight meditation and they started with, we put our arms out. So whoever knows meditation routines, you tell me what this is. They wanted to start with getting us energy, like focusing our energy. So we did things like this. We did things like this, tapping all over our heads right? We did this. We did, we were tapping like crazy as I was sitting in the chair and I was like, this is weird. Okay. I got it. I got it. We're in this room with all these people. Um, then believe it or not, they said the Lord's prayer, which, uh, you know, I was born Catholic. So I thought, well, I know this prayer. Um, and I, I'm not a religious person. I'm very, I do believe in the role of spirituality in, in a person's life. Um, no, and, and I believe an atheist can be a spiritual, have a spiritual discipline, just FYI. It's not necessary for me that person, person believes in God. Um, anyway, uh, after about 20 minutes of sitting, this was an hour meditation on, and it's midnight about after about 20 minutes of sitting in this metal chair and I'm like, oh, you know, okay, I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying. Cause you know, it was that ooh, anxiety around concentration. And then all of a sudden, my, I just, my head, my brain lifted out and uh, an internal world opened to me. I don't know how else to describe it. It was almost like I had an internal mirror that said, hello, here you go. Hi, say hello to this person to sound corny. And uh, make sure that you say good morning to this person every day from this point forward. So uh, it was interesting to try to get into the discipline. Now I don't have to do any of this. I, I committed to that for the first couple of months. I don't do any of that now. Now I just do intentional breathing, and that usually gets me right into the headspace I need to be. And, uh, and without, needing, uh, Mary, without needing to hear a recorded meditation, you just uh, breathe in and breathe out. Uh, actually, I tried. Yeah, I tried the Calm app. I tried all of that. Actually, somebody guiding me is distracting to me. Um, yeah, you need to do it on your own timing. And if, what I hear you saying, so this, the tapping and so on, it's partially also Qigong does also that one. And it's, the tapping is also one of the form of meditation. The other one of just breathing in and breathing out. If you do it with the same length, 
you are actually doing even heart coherence. So you're putting your heart in a coherence, which is also what I'm doing. And it's, it just gives you so much calm. Yeah. Uh, and the more you think also about positive emotion, the more it also will uh, uh, make you refill those emotions. Well, exactly. And, and then certainly the, um, you know, again, it sounds corny, but I do embrace the notion of, uh, you know, counting your blessings. I, I don't know how else to say it, but I literally wake up every morning and I, you know, I don't live in a glorious McMansion. I don't even aspire to. I live in a humble little place that I absolutely adore. And I walk around and go, you know, thank you. I'm so grateful to have this. And yeah, thank so you for meeting like with Zaria. And thank you for bringing Sandrina into our lives so we could start My Care Village, uh, you know, and, and start advancing that important work. So tell us also about more about uh, my village. Um, when I first came back to the States after Phillips, um, I took an online course to become a health coach for my own interest, you know, because the minute I moved back to the U.S., I gained 10 pounds. I didn't change a thing except what I bought my food in the U.S., I didn't change what I ate. I changed where I purchased it. Yeah, yeah. But that automatically changed. And broccoli stock in the U.S. is nowhere near the quality of a broccoli stock in Amsterdam, I came to realize very quickly. So I wanted to understand that. So I, I learned all of this. So, so, but then I was sitting in, as in the Javits Center in New York. And we were all, there were a thousand people in there. And all of us were in there. And I was looking around this room and I'm going, now, this program assumes that all a thousand of us in this room are entrepreneurs, and we know that is not the case. So how are we going to get all of this fabulous expertise out there? Because this requires that they be entrepreneurs, which is why Sandrina is very successful, because she's entrepreneurial. So... So I was trying to sort that through over the years and then just got caught up in UPIC Health and stuff. And so we started, I, I could see that telehealth, you know, you had to be blind not to see that was the future uh, of healthcare, at least in this country, but I think around the world. So I said, all right, can we help this anxiety, this isolation and COVID situation with these people who are stuck in their apartments in New York and surrounded by death? and the sounds of death with the sirens, could we do that with health coaches and a clinical psychologist to tear up to? Kind of like, think about tech support. You know, you go in, you get first tier, tier one, and then the, if they got to do level two, then level three. I like the idea of tech support for our body. And our well, this is like <laughs> tech support for our body. We level up, we do, our tier three is our clinical psychologist. Okay. Makes sense. So I said, but we definitely need more training because if we open this up as free access, come in and we're here to help. Um, we're going to need more training because we're going to see some issues of trauma. We're going to see issues of addiction. We're going to see some real mental health issues come through. So I got the California Consortium of Addiction Professionals aligned with us. Uh, to provide training for trauma-informed care that they give to peer counselors around the country. So Sandrina and I had shared vision. We brought in our psychologists and a, and a bunch of health coaches. Sandrina's got some that she's been seeing for a year, and they've all gotten extremely better. Maybe early on, we saw them a couple times a week. 
Now it's maybe once every two weeks, maybe it's once a month. It just depends. Um, but we're making a difference. And so we've launched uh, in a soft launch, mycarevillage.org. We have um, a uh, pay per use program for hospitals and employers. Uh, and technically, UPIC Health is the first employer using MyCare Village. Um, and we're in the process of uh, uh, kicking off a fundraising campaign. And is that something that you also expect to contribute to the happiness? Is also for you a way to contribute to the happiness of your employees and other employees to provide so, that support? So let me share with you. So employee assistance programs are, are you know, they're out there. Everybody knows about them and employers use them. But, um, but employers have started questioning the spend because employees tend not to use them you know, meaningfully. And so we've been trying to see why is that and what could we do differently? And what we've discovered is uh, employees are really concerned about confidentiality. If you're, they don't want the healthcare provider to give data on their mental health to their employer. So we're doing things uh, to stem that, like we've We've decided, okay, for a kickoff, we'll give them access to our employer contract so they'll see that we don't give any data. We've got all kinds of things. But we ran into this a little bit with UPIC, and we just had some conversation. We had a couple folks overcome it, and I have one employee who is a transformed woman. I'm not allowed to say anything to her because I want her to know. I have no details about what she has been talking about. I have no idea what her issue is, but I am now seeing a transformed employee and it's absolutely uh, energizing and validating on top of all of the testimonials that we get. Um, so I think it will, it will create an environment where the pursuit of happiness is possible. Mary, so what do you love or hate about being a leader and especially about being a CEO? What's your love and hate type of things? Well, so I don't hate a single thing about it. There's nothing I hate except when our technology fails and then I want to scream because technology is failing more consistently Uh, it's across the board. It's in my clients. It's in, on our side. We've just moved to a new technology partner and he's awesome. So his company is doing a great job and, and we expect that some of our problems are going to subside a little bit. Uh, cyber keeps me up at night. So we go back to the integrity. I don't like, I don't like, I don't like, you know, dark web hackers out there doing evil bidding. <laughs> you know, so cut that out. And what do you love the most? Tell us what you love the most about leading people and being CEO. I love, I love that what I thought was expected of me, I was dead wrong. And I love the humble pie that I've been fed to get to a place where I think I'm a, this sounds arrogant. I don't mean it to sound, I'm much better leader than I was when you and I worked together. Much better. I, what I, 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 well, I had to eat some humble pie. I was old school hierarchical management. And that is some BS right there. It, my ego was tied up in it. 
I didn't even know my ego was tied up in it. I had to have a level set from my my team at UPIC to help to hold up the mirror to me and go, you know, it's not all about you, lady. And I and I was like, wow, I didn't even realize I was conveying that. I thought I was just being an out a, a driven CEO. So I had to redefine for myself what that means. CEO, people take it way too seriously, I think. <laughs> you know, I do. It's like, who needs a washroom? It's like, come on, I got my dog, you know, I'm a, I got put my dog at my feet, right? I'm on the bottom. My, here, my job is to make sure the tools work, that the vendors we have working for our teams are, are brisk in their response to my team's needs. That's my job. My job is to make sure that they understand what's expected of them and that they're measured and or that their merit increases are, are objective. We, we have a rule where we say 90% objective and then 10%. If you bring it, you get it. And, and I'm okay with that. And everybody else has to be okay with it too. Betty, what comes very easy to you as a leader and what do you feel you still struggle with? <laughs> Nothing and everything. <laughs> um, what do I handle well? Oh boy. I don't know. I, well, through meditation and, and the, the humble pie, I, I think I, uh, you know, I, I just am learning to handle problems better. You know, like now, now it helps. I have, I have the best mentor in the world. I got, the, I got so lucky to meet a guy that invested in the company early on and, and he and I meet weekly. So, and he's a, he's a glorious last of a dying breed investor. He's really amazing. So, uh, I, you know, I think, I think listening, I'm doing, I'm doing well, I'm doing pretty well, (laughs) pretty well listening. Um, and things I'm not doing well. And there's any, every CEO will tell you this. I'm not doing well, that you still struggle. I mean, it's like that's like still so struggle. It's gone. When I have to invest in something, when I know I have to do it and I have to write a check for $20,000, I'll be like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. Every single CEO will tell you that's what they hate to do. And that's what I hate to do. And then I bite the bullet and I do it. And then I'm usually happy. Ask you which book changed your life that you would recommend everybody to read. Do you have one? Yeah, Goldfish. Yeah, Yellowfish. <laughs> I no, I. Uh, uh, I, omnivore's dilemma changed my life. It validated my history. It acknowledged where I wasn't paying attention. And it helped me recognize for the first time as a human being with my feet planted on the same rock that the rest of us have our feet planted on. What do I do to make it better? It was the first time that it made me ask that question as opposed to ego-driven at Philip. And it wasn't Philip's fault. It was ego-driven, you know, what, what kudos can we get for the best NPS, you know, net promoter score? Totally different intention to, to say that's an outcome. Go deeper. Make it more meaningful. The NPS girl happened. When a human leader that it's really always inspires you, you have one? 
my mentor. He, I tell you, he's, listen, he sold his company in the eighties for half a billion. Okay. He's a, he's, he's a guy that is get, he's introduced presidents. I, and I, very quick story. I was trying to get an investor and I was at a no, go, go or no go moment. And I called a bank president on a Sunday night on his cell phone. And I said, I don't care who you haven't introduced me to yet. You dig into that Rolodex because I'm at a go or no go moment and I want to go. So he writes to me, he's like, all right, I'm going to introduce you to this guy, but, you know, be on your game. And I scheduled uh, our first meeting at a coffee shop that had apparently closed. (laughs) So so he he shows up, but he's, you want to, he's, he's the embodiment of corporate integrity. He is. He is who I think Ronald Reagan had in mind. I think Ronald Reagan was an idealist and he had in mind trickle-down economics. That is my mentor. He, he is that person. He created a fellowship at NYU because he's also a little Doogie Hauser brainiac. He was teaching at NYU at 20, okay? So he has a fellowship where these uh, students go through NYU as graduates, and then for two years, they're Bursoff fellows, and they have to go and work at B and C colleges and cascade the Ivy level education in those schools. That's so, a requirement. Would you interview him as well, Mary? Would you recommend, huh? us also, would you recommend us to interview him as well? I would. Yeah, his name's Ed Bursoff, and I'll talk to him about it next week if you'd like to meet him. He's, he's, a, he's an extraordinary human being. So last two questions from me. What does it mean to you to be humankind? And how can we be both more human and more kind? (laughs) Easy questions. Uh, Learn how to love yourself. Because then you'll be able to love everybody else. That's it. Yeah, that's That's it. Like one of my favorite books, it's the, The Five Agreements from Ruiz. And he has another book, The Mastery of Love, where the, actually the, the, the core is exactly what you're saying. So what is your last uh, gold nugget that you would give to the audience for them if there is the one thing they should do right now to, to be more human, more kind in their life, and also yeah, happier and better leader, better human leader? I, I really had to overcome my ego. I don't know if anybody has that same issue. So I don't want to presume anybody in this call does. But if you ever find yourself girding your loins and bristling and tensing up your back and feeling your shoulders go up when someone is expressing, whether it's criticism or something, no matter the role, or if they're yelling, if they're mad, if they're upset and you feel yourself tensing up, do that Andrew Weil breathe through the nose and mouth square thing to get you back regulated. And, 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 and recognize that uh, if your ego is present, the conflict will be prolonged. Mm-hmm. If you can just dispense it and say, I can see you're upset. I'm really ready to help work through that. What do we need to talk about? And just, you know, I've had some terrible things said to me in anger in the teens in the early days when I had to learn I was old school. And, and, and man, I'm, I'm like, you know, I get a nervous twitch. But that was my ego reacting. When I realized 
I'm just a human being. I'm, I'm flawed. So is everybody else. And they're just calling that they just expressed their boundaries. I may not have liked how they expressed it, but they express their boundaries. I got to honor that. And that's really what it is. And I can confirm that I see the difference. It's like well, if I think back of when you were my manager, I was more thinking sometimes I would work on eggs to say something. Yeah, work on eggs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now Absolutely. I can just say it to you. <laughs> That's right. And and we had no, that's exactly right. You you know, I I my ego was so involved in in that role that you know I look back and go, oh God, that was a cringy meeting. But still, yeah. one thing that you mentioned at the beginning of you as a leader is that you really work uh, to make people succeed. And that is still something that I remember from my time. I mean, so well, if you're an ego, you were always there to make me also succeed. So that's uh, for sure. It's still, uh, it was already there. Well, that's, that's always the goal, so. Gosh, I could keep asking you a lot of questions uh, as well. I don't see more questions from the audience, so I would say that I would uh, close it here. But if people do have some questions and want to reach out to you, what's the best way? TikTok or LinkedIn? TikTok. Follow me on TikTok. Mary at upichealth, uh, upichealth.com. If you're interested in talking about uh, for-profit corporate governance and MyCare Village, Mary at mycarevillage.org. If you're interested in talking about our work there. Thank you very much, Mary. Thank you to everybody for having been with us in this uh, uh, interview. And yeah, we'll keep in touch and wish you good luck with my care. We love oh, you're going to be working with us here pretty soon. So everybody needs to know we're bringing Rosaria in. Um, I want my leadership team to learn how to cascade self-care to their teams. So... Rosaria is coming in to teach us all of that. So we're looking forward to that. You're going to laugh more, so not just rely on jokes to laugh, but you haven't said yes to it yet. So like, I'm hearing it now. <laughs> yeah. Um, listen, I, I really am so privileged and honored that you wanted to talk to um, me today. I'm, I'm your biggest fan. You know that. Uh, I love the work that you guys are doing. And, and thank you so much for just continuing to push the global community. You're doing exactly the right thing to get us all thinking differently. And I appreciate you. Thank you again. And thank you, everyone. And until the the next webinar, thank you. Bye. This was the Happiness Contribution Show, available on YouTube as a webcast and on your favorite channels as podcast. If you like the show, we would appreciate if you share it with one person that may benefit from it too. Subscribe to our channel and tune in for the next episode. You can find all the episodes and discover more happiness contribution tips on our website, happinesscontribution.com. That's all for today. Stay happy and healthy and nurture happiness contribution.